Would you pray with me? Your word is truth, reviving the soul. Your decrees are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Your commandments are right, bringing joy to the heart. Your commands are clear, giving insight to life. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The law of the Lord is true. Every one of them is fair. They are more to be desired than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to those who hear them. There is great reward for those who obey them. How can I know the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep me from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. And then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So, why do they hate us so much? That's the question that has come to the mind of nearly every American who's watched that hijacked airliner slam itself into the World Trade Center. Over and over again, I've seen it, and why? Why do they hate us so much? Why terrorists? Why Al-Qaeda? Why bin Laden? Where did all this evil come from? How did it start? Good questions. Radical questions. Presumably, if we could just identify the root cause we could pull the weed. Radical evil needs a radical analysis and a radical solution. And the Bible is a radical book in every sense of the word. It, it answers the question by asking another question. Why is there any evil at all? Why are bad things in the world? And the answer it gives starts in the text we're going to look at this morning. In brief, it says, we hate and do bad things and have bad things done to us because we're all messed up. We are fallen creatures. We do bad things because we're bad people. It's that simple. And it's that complex. Things like what happened on September 11th are not bumps along the road of humanity's quest to find God. They are the consequences of our deliberate abandonment of God. Let me say it another way. They're not tragic failures of 
well-meaning but confused and ignorant people earnestly trying to do what they think is right. They're the acts, all of these bad things that happen, are the acts of corrupted and flawed people doing the things one would expect corrupted and flawed people to do. Ultimately, September 11th is not about them and us, but about us. Period. And that's the theme of the passage this morning, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. It's, it's a scene that takes place in a lovely garden. It's the place that God has placed the first humans. It's a place where everything that grows is lovely to look at. It's fresh. It's delicious. It just needs to be picked and cared for and lived under the authority and the loving care of God. And, and at the center of the garden, there are two trees side by side. A tree of life, which is a common symbol in the ancient Middle East. A lot of ancient mythologies had tree of life, a place where one could go and eat and, and live and live forever if they could just get to the fruit. But what's absolutely unique about the Bible here is that right next to it is this other tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's unique. Saying that linked in a very dynamic and intimate way is the question of good and evil with life. Good and evil as in knowing it, experiencing it. Uh, sometimes in the Bible that phrase knowing good and evil just means living with the full range of your capacities, of being independent, of uh, being an adult, so to speak. And God says, he couldn't be more clear, don't eat from that tree. You can eat all you want from life, but don't touch, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that's the backdrop for the text. Listen to the word of God. Now, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the creatures the Lord God had made. Really? He asked the woman. Did God really say you must not eat any of the fruit in the garden? Of course, we may eat it, the woman told him. It's only the fruit from the tree at the center of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God says we must not eat it or even touch it or we'll die. You won't die, the serpent hissed. God knows your eyes will be opened when you eat it and you'll become just like God, knowing everything both good and evil. Well, the woman was convinced. The fruit looked so fresh and delicious and it would make her so wise. So she ate some of it. She gave some to her husband, who was with her. Then he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes 
were opened. And they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they strung fig leaves together around their hips to cover themselves. Toward evening, they heard the sound of the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid themselves among the trees. The Lord God called to Adam, Where are you? He replied, I, I heard you, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten the fruit I commanded you not to eat? Yes, Adam admitted. But it was the woman you gave me who brought me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, How could you do such a thing? The serpent tricked me, she replied, and that's why I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you will be punished. You are singled out from all the domestic and wild animals of the whole earth to be cursed. You will grovel in the dust as long as you live, crawling along on your belly. And from this time on, you and the woman will be enemies, and your offspring and her offspring will be enemies. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, You will bear children with intense pain and suffering, and though your desire will be for your husband, he will be your master. And to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit I told you not to eat, I have placed a curse on the ground. For the rest of your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. But for the rest of your life, you will sweat to produce food until the day you die. And then you will return to the ground from which you came. For you were made from dust. And to the dust, you will return. The word of the Lord. It's a passage filled with irony and unexpected and utterly tragic consequences. Yes, their eyes are opened, just like the serpent said, but they see something else. They see their nakedness. Everything goes flying off from the center. Every relationship is broken. With themselves trying to be like God, what happens? They become less than human. With God trying to be like God, they become terrified of God. With each other, trying to be like God always makes each of us an automatic competitor with everyone else who's trying to be like God, right? Have you eaten the fruit I told you not to eat? Well, yes, but it was the woman you gave me who brought me the fruit and I ate it. 
Eve, you'll bear children, but with intense pain and suffering. And though your desire will be for your husband, he'll be your master. Adam, you're going to slave to get the thing that you took so flippantly and rebelliously. It'll never be easy to make a living again. Frederick Buechner writes, The power of sin is centrifugal. When at work in a human life, it tends to push everything out toward the periphery. Bits and pieces go flying off until only the core is left. Eventually, bits and pieces of the core itself go flying off until in the end, nothing at all is left. Quite a picture. The wages of sin is death. Is the Apostle Paul's way of saying the same thing. Well, how does this happen? It happens when the serpent successfully plants three explosive thoughts in our minds. Explosive thought number one. Maybe God is not to be taken so seriously. That's a biggie. And you know, even as I stand in front of this campus and preach, I tremble at that one. Even as I stand in front of faculty and students who, who may not even know how serious a thing it is to hear the Word of God. And in not knowing that, may not know how utterly fatal that ignorance is. Maybe God is not to be taken quite so seriously. Now, up to this point, everything God says is taken seriously. It's a matter of life or death. It's about eternity. You must not eat that. You must not go there. You must listen to me or you will die. How can such pristine clarity, such awful gravity be so easily compromised? Two ways. The tempter always comes in a spirit of discussion. Really? Did God really say this? Let's talk about it. He's never direct. He always sort of sneaks in. In fact, the word serpent that's translated as serpent, and it's a good translation, it, it, but it means something like multicolored, beautiful. Really? Remember the first uh, puppet show I ever saw? I saw it in second grade. It was at my elementary school, and it was uh, put on by dental health people. And uh, they had this green goblin, you know, cavities everywhere. And then all the little children he was trying to uh, lure into temptation, you know, with candy bars and stuff like that. And it was really cool because they got us whipped up into a frenzy. Every time the uh, green goblin would come up on the, on the stage, you know, and said, have some candy, little kids, you know. But we'd, stand, we'd shout, go away, green goblin, you know. That's not a spirit of discussion. That's not the way of our enemy. 
He begins with a question, a suggestion, not an argument, but a bewildered, incredulous tone. Really? And his rationale is to get our eyes off God and onto the question of God. This is so shrewd. This is the deception. He's saying, in effect, now, it's not God who's who's question here. It's not God we're really calling into doubt, but it's what did he mean when he said what he said? See how clever that is? God can be dismissed without dismissing him. All one has to do is to introduce doubt about what actually has been said. And brothers and sisters, hear me. God is not known apart from his word. You don't have to attack God by attacking God. All you need to do is to introduce skepticism and sort of fundamental uncertainty about what he said. How many times have you heard it said when Scripture is quoted and introduced into some situation? Well, that's your interpretation. Let me translate that for you. That's your interpretation means, well, there are so many interpretations, there must be that many meanings. Or there are so many interpretations, then, well, it's just impossible for us to know any truth about anything. I mean, truth is a needle in a haystack, right? I mean, we're only being reasonable. We're trying to keep our minds open and and keep the dialogue and the discussion going, and we get our minds off God onto the question of God, and what did he really mean by this? And Pascal put his finger on it when he said, those who do not love truth excuse themselves on the basis that it's disputed. And people disagree. Let's talk about it. There's great danger in discussing God, of speaking of Him in the third person, of talking about Him instead of to Him. You can be sure of this. The serpent would not have said, let's ask God what He meant. No, let's you and I wonder about what he meant. But God is always the one to whom we must answer, not the other way around. And this is so important for Christian college. Discussions about God should always take place with the utmost of reverence and humility. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom he must give an account. Maybe you've noticed I've been talking about God in his presence. Kind of weird, isn't it? Like standing in a group and talking about someone who's standing there. 
And all I say is, Lord, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me, Lord, if I have not spoken well of you. The tempter always comes in a spirit of discussion, and he always comes expressing sympathetic kindness. Did God really say you must not eat any of the fruit in the garden? I mean, is he that bad? Well, no, God didn't say anything of the sort. But what the serpent, the tempter, is introducing here is God is too hard on you. Life is too hard on you. And you are too hard on you. You deserve a break today. And there's no industry like alcohol that understands this better. For all you do finish the sentence this buds for you or it's Miller time people coming off the job doing hard stuff I mean really it's it's hard out there and which of us doesn't love to hear that said to us You've been too hard on yourself. And is God really that hard? Maybe God is not to be taken so seriously. Explosive thought number one. Explosive thought number two is maybe God is not to be trusted. Now the serpent was the shrewdest of all the creatures the Lord God had made. Really, he asked the woman, did God really say this? Well, no, he didn't. But listen now. God knows when you eat this, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. And that's the last thing he wants. You'll know everything just like him. You'll know good and evil. And what comes along with this, well, well, well now, really, have you ever thought this? Why would God make this thing I want to do so attractive? Why would he give me such strong desires? Multiple choice. A, God is bad. B, my desires are bad. C, maybe we don't understand what he really meant. Back to explosive thought number one. And how many of us are willing to say what I so desperately want to do? is bad. And the fact that I want to do it is bad. How much easier, again, it's never very overt, but to wonder, is God jealous? Is God, well, is he just not a very nice person? You know, last night I watched for about the fourth time, well, I think it's a fairly brilliant movie, at least with a brilliant performance by Al Pacino as the devil. Seen the film Devil's Advocate? Now, what would the devil be if he were walking around today in the flesh? Well, he'd be running a multinational law firm. All you pre-law people. <laughs> His name is John Milton, for all you lit majors. And he recruits a hot, young, you know, kind of a lawyer jock out of Florida, played by Keanu Reeves. Never quite works for me with Keanu, Bill and Ted, you know, the attorney and so on. But there's this climactic speech, and I, I really wanted to show it for you this morning, but, uh, well, doggone it, he uses the F word right in the middle of it, and so I didn't want to 
had that blasted across chapel this morning. <laughs> but I want you to listen to the devil talk to Keanu, to Kevin. He says, guilt is a sack of bricks that you only need to lay down. But Keanu's not quite ready to do it, so the devil gives a speech. Why are you carrying all those bricks? For whom? God? Let me give you a little inside information about God. God likes to watch. He's a prankster. Think about it. He gives man instincts. He gives you this extraordinary gift. And what does he do? I swear, for his own amusement, his own private cosmic gag reel, he sets the rules in opposition. It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. Taste, but don't swallow. And while you're jumping from one foot to another, what's he doing? He's laughing his sick blankety-blank-blank. He's a sadist. He's an absolute landlord, an absentee landlord. Worship that? Never. I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. I've nurtured every sensation man has ever been inspired to have. I've cared about what he wanted. I never judged him. Why? Because I've never rejected him because of his imperfections. I'm a fan of man. I'm a humanist. Maybe I'm the last humanist. I'm on your side. God isn't. And that, my friends, is an explosive thought. You ever wondered why it says in the Bible, without faith, it's impossible to please God? Now, Jesus says it. I mean, the greatest thing we can ever do is to love God with our whole being and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the, the number one law. But when it talks about pleasing God, God says, you have to trust me. Here's why. You and I will never get around to loving God until we first start trusting him. And the explosive thought that separates us from God at every point, even sometimes a God we think we love, is we don't trust him. That's explosive thought number two. Explosive thought number three, then. Maybe God's not to be taken so seriously. Maybe he's not to be trusted completely. Well, if not God, then who? Multiple choice. A, you. B, you. C, you. Who else? And the woman was convinced the fruit looked so fresh and delicious and it would make her so wise. The deadly appeal of sin is to our pride, our desire to be like God. And pride is a sin with capital S. All the rest, greed, lust, envy, murder, theft, lies, all these are sins, small s. I have a list of quotations here. I'll just give you two. Oswald Chambers. Sin is a fundamental relationship. It is not wrongdoing, but wrong being. It is deliberate and determined independence from God. Our C.S. Lewis, of course. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. 
It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And why? Lewis continues. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see anything that is above you. Who can you trust? Well, me. Or something I choose. And that's explosive. And again, the power of pride, the power of sin is centrifugal. It just makes things unravel. You can't get along in a world where everybody is God. It just can't happen. And it starts innocently, but its trajectory is awesome. And it goes way beyond Twin Towers. It stretches out into eternity. Well, the worst thing I could possibly do now would be to close my Bible and stop after talking about sin. I have to ask one more question. What can be done? Well, we've got to get back somehow, right? To the garden, to home, to God, to each other, to ourselves. You know, I think this is one of the reasons we, or so many of us, like the Wizard of Oz. Trying to somehow get, get there, you know? Here's this motley bunch, uh, a girl without a home, a scarecrow without a brain, a lion without courage, a tin man without a heart, and they think that they can just sort of skip down the yellow brick road and, and find the Wizard of Oz, that he'll sort of set all that straight. And they get there and they find out he's a big fake. I love that scene where Dorothy stamps her foot. She says, you're a very bad man. And he says, oh, actually, I'm a pretty good man. I'm just a bad wizard. <laughs> and he helps them to see that they've been seeing the solution to their problems as running toward something when they really need to go back to what they're running from. Now, that's where the analogy ends because the rest of The Wizard of Oz is kind of a self-help parable. But we've got to get back, friends. We've got to get back. But we can't. Maybe the most plaintive question in all of Scripture is where are you? Where are you? I mean, to get back, God has to do something. Right? Hear the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.19 God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their sins against them. Verse 21. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We've got to get back. We can't get back. 
Only God, only God can come and find us and bring us back. But to go back, to be reconciled, means we've got to face what we've been running from. True story. Read it in the L.A. Times. Took place in Seattle about 15 years ago. A young man was being sentenced for conspiracy to sell cocaine. And he had, up to this point, steadfastly refused to supply the judge and the authorities with the names of his suppliers. Judge Walter T. McGovern was presiding. Just before sentencing, he said, turn around and look back at the courtroom at your parents. I know which ones they are by the looks on their faces. The boy turned around. The judge said, uh, would you please turn around again, only longer. The judge said, young man, I want you to look at them. And he turned around a third time and watched as his father wept and his mother buried her face in her hands. He looked a long time. And then he turned around and one by one, spelling some of the names, he gave the judge the names of every one of his suppliers. Now, that's how you get home. In case you're interested, he got a five-year sentence suspended. But that's how you get home. You don't get home by suddenly, you know, kind of getting it together and, and sort of, you know, getting good feelings up or, or, or sort of running in some general religious direction. You get home by going back to where you started and looking at what you've done and who you are and what you must have to be set straight. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin. so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's how you get home. That's how you get home. Dorothy, Tin Man, Scarecrow, and Lion. What you lack, you're not going to find out there. You're going to find back here. Let's pray. And Father in Heaven, we pray now that we would take you seriously and that, Lord, we would trust you to be God and that, Lord, you give us the grace of repentance and tears to come home. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. May God bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Amen.